Hi everyone, my name is Penny Cook and I'm the president and CEO of Pioneer Network. I wanna welcome you to the latest edition of Pioneer Network's Listen, Learn, Explore podcast. We feature experts in person-directed care and culture change and explore timely topics. I'm pleased today to introduce episode nine of season two, The Power of Person-Centered Care, an approach that offers help during a staffing crisis and compassionate support for LGBTQ elders with my guest, Kim Orchall. Kim is an occupational therapist and the president and founder of Dementia Care Specialists at Crisis Prevention Institute. Dementia Care Specialists offers a person-centered, abilities-focused model of care for those living with Alzheimer's and dementia. And Kim believes that with the proper training and support for care partners, we can give those living with dementia the quality of life they deserve. Welcome, Kim. Thank you, Penny. Always good to be with you. Well, and thank you for being here again for season two. I was so happy you wanted to come back. (laughs) It's fun. I love it. (laughs) That's great. And what relevant topics to be talking about today, the staffing crisis that we're currently experiencing and the discussion of LGBTQ elders as we celebrate Pride Month in June. Yes, yes. Two very important topics. So thanks for having me. Oh, my goodness. You're very welcome. You know, it's, it's common knowledge right now that our healthcare sector is facing this labor shortage. In fact, I would say that it's all different sectors, um, you know, in our society right now. But we also know that there are some settings, especially the ones that we do work in, that are really having a significant staffing issue. And this is where people are living um, and being cared for and supported. So, you know, I'm going to ask this million dollar question, what are your thoughts on ways that we can help? Yeah, you know, Penny, there's, um, to me, I kind of put it into two different buckets. I'll say, okay, let's talk about some basics. And then let's talk about some creative, innovative ideas. So in terms of the basics, you know, I think when we're looking at such a significant um, labor shortage that these that our senior living providers and even home care is facing, you know, we have to say, well, what can we do to attract and maintain quality, quality team members? So from the from the perspective of the basics, one thing I think that we're seeing is working is trying to be more flexible, you know, offering more flexible shifts. So, you know, a lot of, what did they call it? The great resignation. A lot of older workers retired and now they're saying, hey, maybe I want to come back, but maybe they don't want to do the traditional shift. So they want part-time. So can we attract um, perhaps in, in this example, that older semi-retired worker by offering, you know, uh, shorter shifts, flexible shifts? I think that that can help. Um, we, ha- we also have to get back to the basics of really treating our team members well. You know, getting to know them. You know, there was a, um, a mentor of mine, her name was Ellen Friesen, and she ran a very successful therapy rehab company. Everybody wanted to work for Ellen. Nobody left Ellen's employment. And I think her secret sauce was every team member fe- felt like a valued person, almost a family member first. So not just saying thank you, but really getting to know the family, get, getting to know your staff as family. I think that that goes a really long way. Um, but you know, aside from that and paying, paying a competitive wage, I think we can get creative too. And I was thinking about this the other day. So while we really are trying to staff up, 
what are some other ways that we can help reduce staff burden uh, during this time period? So first of all, educate and train that staff. We know that they're working with a lot of people with dementia and behavioral health needs. How can we help them be more efficient and effective and save time, not waste time? So really training and empowering them as a piece. Um, but how about helping that resident to do more for themselves, optimizing their level of independence? Um, that's a real key factor. And then families, when they're coming in to visit, how do we, you know, we need to educate and train them how to have um, a good, good interaction with their loved one when they're there. Maybe we can create these individual kits for them that they can just take off a shelf and and engage with their loved one, which will save time for the staff in the long, in the long run. So I think it's building that bigger team that consists of the staff member, the family member and volunteers and the resident themselves, uh, which in the long run can help reduce the time required from the staff. And we know their time is so valuable more than ever during a crisis. Kim, you are talking about so many of the things that, you know, I feel like in, in some ways we've been talking about for so long. I mean, you started with, you know, one of our primary values, know each person, right? Mm -hmm. When you know people well, you develop relationships with them, you know their stories. I mean, it just builds something that's deep and you're right. I think, you know, that, that plays a part in staff retention. Mm -hmm. And also this idea of, kind of putting some effort on that front end, you know, with residents. So you actually reduce the time that the staff needs to support somebody on the back end, you know? <laughs> and I think about that, my stepfather's living in a nursing home. And unfortunately, you know, they're part of this overall staffing crisis. And they've had a situation where they don't have enough staff to help residents to walk, to even walk in their room and things like that. And of course, what happens? They become more debilitated. They become yes. weaker. They're not able to, which means it requires more staff time yep. and new staff members. You know, we get into these cycles and it's so hard to kind of take some time. But I love how you bring the family into this as well because I think that's so important to give families the education and resources and support that they need to have a role and assist yeah. their loved one too. Yeah, I think they're, they're a huge piece when we think about it, Penny, and when they're coming in to visit, let's think about how that visit could go. If, they, if, they, if their loved one perhaps has dementia, they may not know how to communicate or how to interact. Um, with someone who perhaps um, doesn't have real good language anymore or has short-term memory or even long-term memory deficits. So if we can give them some education and training to have a more meaningful visit, that's gonna save time for that staff member and that's gonna encourage that family member to wanna come back because they feel like, hey, this was valuable. I really enjoyed this visit with my loved one. It was good for me, it was good for my loved one. And then they're not running up to the staff saying, you know, I need help here, something's going on. They're able to engage with their loved one and engage in the environment. We build beautiful environments, you know, great outdoor spaces, et cetera. But do they know how to use those spaces? 
And that's where I think some of these engagement kits can be really helpful. You have a loved one who loves to garden, let's put together a little kit. So when the family member comes in, they could take it, go out with their loved one, enjoy the garden together. So those are some, to me, some ways we really got to start re rethinking who the team is <laughs> and how we can empower everyone on that team. That's so true. I love the fact that you say we're rethinking who the team is. You know, that the team is broader than the individuals who are getting paid, for instance, yes. to either work in senior living, you know, for home care, to work in home care. The team is much broader than that of including family members. And we have a colleague that we work with, Paul Falkowski, that talks about the role of volunteers as well, to have the volunteers be part of the team. But again, there has to be the resources there and there has to be the education and training. So you're really kind of thinking of a different mindset here mm -hmm. um, and expanding that, which I love. So, you know, we know that this idea of emotional wellness, well-being, behavioral wellness is so important. What do you think the relationship is between that and the current staffing crisis? And do you think we can have a role in that? Yeah, so when we think about behavioral wellness, it really is about a person feeling safe, loved, productive, uh, loving, they have, you know, they have purpose, you know, so let's talk about what, what we mean by behavioral wellness. And that's not just for a resident in a long-term care community, senior living community, that's for all of us. I always say we have to have a reason to throw our legs over the edge of the bed in the morning and get up and embrace the day. Uh, and that is this, the same is true for our elders and our elders living in senior living. So if we can empower that person to be the best that they can possibly be and to live in emotional well-being, it just has that beautiful trickle-down you know, impact. So again, I go back to if they're feeling all those positive emotions, they're going to better take care of themselves. They're going to be more independent. We've even seen residents take on volunteer roles themselves. You know, so they become uh, very productive and, and purposeful. Uh, and so that's, you know, that's again, helping to decrease the burden on the staff by empowering the resident to live in behavioral well-being. But then when you think about too, if a staff member comes to work and they feel threat, threatened or they're abused by a client and they're not getting the support in, you know, the education and the empathy and compassion that they need from their management and their team, they're going to leave that job or they're going to leave the field. Um, so we have to be very sensitive to how um, distress behaviors like anxiety, agitation, resistance, hitting, how is that impacting the person themselves, like we talked about, and how is it impacting that worker whose job it is to get into their intimate spaces, which can trigger distress? Um, and, and how can we make that whole situation exponentially better, which saves staff time, helps that staff to want to go to work, and, and maintains the health and well being of the person in care? 
Oh, I love that. You know, what you're talking about is actually one of our themes for our conference. It's well-being for all. Mm-hmm. So many times, you know, it, I think that at Pioneer Network, for instance, we've always believed that the staff have a huge role in this concept of culture change and person-centered care. And we're not talking about just resident-centered, person-centered living for the person who is normally thought of as the receiver of care and support, but also the care partner that we might think of as the professional caregiver that we need to look at that person to ensure that they're being known, that they have relationships, that they're being valued and respected and all those sorts of things. But I think now that's more important than ever that we look at that. And I know for our conference, we talk a lot about person-directed living and for you know, either the person living with dementia or the resident themselves. But this year, because of everything that's happened, you know, with COVID the past two plus years, we really wanted to emphasize that well-being for staff members too. And that that's so important if you're going, and you know, you, you can't have well-being of elders if you don't have well-being for the people who serve them and care for them and support them. So I think it's, you know, so important what you're talking about. Yeah. And, and you know, there's this, we developed a tool, um, Penny, called an emotional profile. And we really encourage that that be utilized for every resident because when we think about distress communications, there's usually a very logical trigger for that anxiety or that uh, agitation or resistance. So again, getting back to the word collaboration, the larger team, if we can learn about that person in care and know what their distress triggers have always been, and I know I've said this before in other interviews with you, I'm claustrophobic, you put me in a small elevator, that could trigger that, that phobia I have, you know? So really getting to know that person in care proactively and empowering that staff with that knowledge so they don't put themselves or the person in care at risk. You know, and it enables that staff member to come to work, love their job and feel that joy and purpose and it keeps everybody safe. Again, it's really rethinking uh, the way we've always provided care, being proactive and person-centered matters for everyone. And it's like what you said too, a little while ago, it's kind of in a sense, back to the basics. Back to the basics. this isn't, this isn't complicated, but you're right. It's a different way for us to look at personalized. That. It's personalized. Yeah, it's personalized. I love the emotional profile idea. So mm-hmm. that's a tool that you've developed. It's a tool we've developed. Yeah. It's part of the life story. Um, but it's, it's probably far, far more expansive than I've ever seen in anyone else's, but we realize, you know, crisis prevention Institute, we've been working on Uh, distress behavior prevention and intervention for over 40 years. And a lot of it is common sense. It's, you know, just knowing what is this individual's distress triggers, we call them precipitating factors, and how can we avoid triggering them? That's, That's a big part of prevention. So whether it's a young person or an older person or an adult, we, we all have them. So let's get to know those distress triggers and empower that staff with that information. And family, of course, is the keeper in most cases, and that's why they're a key partner in the process. 
It makes so much sense. It makes so much sense. And I know that, you know, your mission overall is really to help elders live well with dementia. Um, And so, I mean, so much of what we're talking about, you know, really goes towards that goal. But can you talk more about that? And also, you know, why is, how does person-centered care help people live well with dementia? Living well with dementia. So let's take the word just living well in general. You know, to me, it's, it's, it's about quality of our life, quality of our moments. So it goes back to what we said a minute ago. Do I feel valued in society? Do I have purpose? Do I feel loved? Am I able to express who I am openly and um, to, be, to be safe? With, with who I am, honored for who I am. You know, unfortunately, when somebody is given a diagnosis of dementia, they're no longer that person first. They are that diagnosis first. And uh, my mission really is 1000% focused on person-centered care. Never forget that this is an individual that has this beautiful life history, still so much to offer into this world, never diminish that person to a diagnosis or a disease first. Then we can help that person live with quality of life. You know, the number one most feared diagnosis, according to AARP a couple years ago, the most feared diagnosis of aging is dementia, Alzheimer's and related dementias. Well, why is that? Because everybody, thinks it's the beginning of the end. They think quality of life is not possible. They think suffering is inevitable. You know, we've got to really check ourselves. You know, we got to really stop and say, you know, let's visualize this individual getting diagnosed with Alzheimer's or dementia. Who surrounds them? Their family, their loved one, people in the community, society, friends, staff, paid staff or care partners. We all have to check our beliefs and our perspectives. So when we hear the word dementia, do we think this person is still capable? Or do we think they can't do anything anymore and they're just going to be agitated and anxious and that's inevitable? What are our expectations for this person? What are our, what's, our, what's our knowledge and our ability to provide care and communication that adapts to them and where they're at in the stage of their disease process. So we're lifting them up to be the best person that they can be with this disease. You know, that, that lives in our heart, Penny. It lives in our heart. And we've really got to look at ourselves in the mirror and say, suffering is not inevitable with dementia. It is us that creates that suffering. So how do we envelop this person with this more hopeful, positive person-centered approach? You know, it's interesting how that word suffer really impacts our mindset. I have a friend who was diagnosed with a dementia-related illness in his early 50s. And he is quite the dementia advocate now. And one of his pet peeves and where he will stand on his soapbox is when people will say that he suffers with dementia. Because he says 
I'm not suffering. If you say that I'm suffering with dementia, you already put me in a box. You put me in that box mm-hmm. that is, it means I'm, I'm depressed. I'm, I'm kind of um, debilitated already. I'm, you know, all of those negative connotations come with suffering. And he'll even say to people, I know you're trying to be compassionate, but that's not compassionate for me. That's how I see myself. And he said, he's continually fighting against that word because we see it so often. We see it in the media. Um, We see it in articles, but we also see it in normal conversation. And we definitely see it when we're talking with people with dementia. Um, So I think that that part is just so important. And I love how you reframe it. I mean, it's really like you're talking about no matter what, helping people to live their best lives. That's right. No matter what, that's different for all of us. Yep. Because we could say that we all, quote unquote, suffer from something. Yes, yes. And, and, you know, I often think about children. Children are very cognitively impaired. And they're at a high risk for um, distress communications like tantrums. <laughs> but, but we certainly understand that even though they have some cognitive limitations or they might you know, reach their stress threshold really quickly and not be able to self-regulate, we understand all that they are capable of and that they are so worthy and that the burden is on us to lift them up to be the best they can be by adapting. We are the ones that must adapt. So yeah, that is, if I had a soapbox that I wanted to stand on, that would be it, is person first with so many capabilities, but our words matter, our perspectives matter greatly. We got to change them. Yeah, I I think it's so true. So I'm going to, I'm going to switch into something because when you say person first, I want to acknowledge too, that this is pride month. Um, that, that we're in the month of June. And one of the things that I talk about, you know, when we talk about this value of knowing each person, I always say when you know each person, it's really the antidote to the isms, you know, because when we really know each person, it's hard to apply some of those isms that we have. And so let's transition a bit and talk about the LGBTQ community. We know that there are challenges there. We know that there are challenges there for LGBTQ elders. What are some of the things that you've seen that they experience in accessing just quality health care? I think they say there's now uh, over 7% of American adults who identify as LGBTQ. Um, We know, I think the Alzheimer's Association says a lot of the uh, elders uh, have dementia there'll be over 7 million uh, elders with dementia by 2030. Uh, So when we think about these elders, we know they're going to need to be accessing healthcare healthcare, um, due to cognitive or other issues that they're gonna face. So what is the biggest challenge that holds them back from accessing it? I, I believe it's fear of discrimination. You know, so even though we've had a lot of progress in that area, we still see um, our elders 
who identify as LGBTQ sometimes feeling very unsafe and, and, and it's warranted. I mean, unfortunately you read a fair amount about, I think there was something uh, in the news a few years ago about a, a resident of a senior living community who was embraced by the other residents until she identified that she was a, a lesbian. And then she said there was a tremendous amount of abuse you know, that occurred after and, and, you know, by the residents and the staff didn't rally around to protect her in the way she had hoped. So that's just one story that we hear out there. But, you know, I can tell you this is something that impacts my life personally, because I identify as bisexual. And I've been in a same sex relationship for many years. And you're always looking at that choice of do I feel safe when I meet that nurse, when I meet that admissions person? Uh, or not? Do I choose to hide? And, you know, being gay or LGBT is not a choice. It's who you are. It's a big part of your history that needs to be understood and embraced by that team. So I think it's fear that keeps people from accessing the health care that they need. Um, and the other big issue is when you think about it, Penny, the LGBT community the elders, um, I think stats say over 30% are not partnered. Um, they're four times less likely to have children. So this is reason for them to even need to use senior living more, but they have to feel safe and not fear discrimination, abuse, or neglect in order to access those services. We're really talking about creating environments where people are individuals, where their choices, where their rights, mm -hmm. who they are as a person are respected. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's, it's interesting to me now, we have a lot of conversations happening about, and about diversity, equity, and inclusion. I almost am hesitant to put those three words together because I'm always afraid that once we begin to talk about something like that, it becomes a buzz phrase instead of something that we're really intentionally looking at in a very respectful way. But I think this idea of being inclusive, we know there's diversity. That part we don't have to really work on. It's all around us and that's the beauty of it. We don't need to work on that. But we do, I think, need to work on being more inclusive. And I think you use the word welcoming. Yeah, I think That's even a warmer word as well. How can we do that? How can we do that as healthcare providers, as healthcare professionals? Yeah, so as an occupational therapist, you know, I, I've got a few thoughts on that. As an occupational therapist, I'm held to a um, code, code of ethics, like a lot of healthcare professionals are. And, um, you know, they asked me to also always recognize any personal biases that could possibly alter, alter my services, you know, based upon my own personal values or opinions. And, you know, I'm asked to move beyond that and treat each person as an individual, no matter what personal bias that may hold. So we have to, you know, keep our oath to those code of ethics. Um, again, person-centered care. We have to remember we can help by just treating this person as an individual, get to know that life story, get to know their family situation. And, um, you know, no matter what we learn, again, just not hold any bias about that, but embrace it and incorporate it and respect it. 
Um, I always say no matter what, because probably there's not a person walking this earth who doesn't hold some judgment or bias about something, no matter how uh, progressed we want to be. Um, so I always say, if you go back to another very basic point, treat others as you would want to be treated. That goes a very long way, empathy and compassion. Um, but I wanna go a little further and say, I'm just beginning to learn about this myself, is a, a group called SAGE and the Human Rights Campaign Foundation have formed um, a, a new tool called the Long-Term Care Quality Index which provides resources like self-assessment tools, uh, policies and practices to help senior living providers become more welcoming and inclusive. So I'm just starting to learn about that myself because when you think about it, Penny, I just said, you know, almost 10% of the American population identifies as LGBTQ. There's a business opportunity here because <laughs> Um, you know, we're going to age and we're going to want to go somewhere where we feel safe. So I'm really happy to hear about this organization um, that anybody can tap into that's a provider. That's terrific. And then there's organizations here like uh, Aldersgate in uh, Charlotte, North Carolina. They're an example of a senior living provider who's really committed to being uh, welcoming um, and they, they've hired a chief diversity, inclusion and equity officer and they train their staff. Uh, and they said, we're not just welcoming um, for residents and their families, but for our staff too. So this can be a great recruitment tool <laughs> if you think about it. You know, if you're really saying we're committed to this at all levels, um, it's, a, it's a very wonderful way to attract staff, attract residents and attract families. But it, you know, at the end of the day, gosh, you know, let's just treat everyone with the same dignity and respect and not say I like or I dislike this person or that person and change the way we serve. They're a person first. And again, that's why person-centered care is always the right answer. Well, I so agree with you on that, that it is because I really think that it helps us to frame how we interact with people, our relationships with people, and how we care and support people. And I also love that you brought up SAGE. They're an organization that partners with Pioneer Network quite a bit, and we were involved um, in the Long-Term Care Equality Index. They're also going to be at our <laughs> conference at the end of July, and they're going to be talking about it as well. So we work with Sage and Cheryl Whalen and Dan Stewart quite a bit. Um, and we're so impressed with the work that they've done. And we've really tried to push out um, the Long-Term Care Quality Index, the LEI too. Um, and I have to tell you a personal story. My son is gay and he lives in New York and my son's in his mid twenties. And the coolest thing for me as his mom and being around you know, my work, basically his whole life, is when he came to me and he said, hey mom, have you ever heard of Sage? And I said, well, yeah, we work with them. And he said, well, I have a friend who volunteers with them because they have this great intergenerational program of oh. matching young adults with elders. And I wow. thought, well, that's so cool. Um, but I think that one of the things that Sage has done so many great things, but one of the great things that they've done is really to create more of these connections 
um, intergenerationally and be such a great advocacy organization um, for LGBTQ elders as well. And really trying to figure out how to provide education and tools and resources to any organizations that work mm -hmm. with older adults, that work with elders, to really just provide a degree of understanding. And I also love with the LEI, and you mentioned this, that it's not just about mm -hmm. elders and residents, it's about everyone in the community. So making sure that your policies and procedures, you know, really that, that you have language that is inclusive language, that your hiring processes, your HR processes are inclusive so that you truly have that welcoming environment for staff members as well, for staff members, for volunteers, for vendors. I mean, it really takes a community, right? And um, I think we need to look at it that way. Yeah, you know, we're going back to the same conversation, right? It's, it's like broadening everything out around this person-centeredness and in this case, being welcoming and inclusive. It's, it's about the client and their family. It's about the staff. It's about the vendors. I love how you said that. And I'm so happy to hear about all the work that you're, you're doing with this uh, group. I, I've just learned about them recently myself when I wrote a blog and I thought I need to get more involved and congrats to your son. Yeah, they, I was, like I said, anything where it relates that my son actually relates to older adults in that way, I'm just so happy about. So, yeah. so that was great. But yes, SAGE is a great organization. I encourage everyone to check them out too. And I think especially as we talk about people who are living with dementia and cognitive decline, um, I really think that we probably have more work there to do. Um, in that intersection with LGBTQ elders as well. Mm -hmm. I mean, I'm kind of fascinated in that because there are so many challenges there, especially for older adults now. So I think that um, in the future, I hope to see more work done on the intersection, so. Yeah, when we think about, when we think about LGBT elders uh, who, who have dementia, that's an interesting thing for me because, you know, a person who has who's cognitively intact can make that decision to hide. But someone with dementia has lost that filter and that ability to plan in, you know, to, to uh, you know, they live more authentically. They just live their truth. So they're even more at risk for discrimination. And, you know, I'll just share a quick story here to, to wrap everything up is that um, I had a two women friends who were together over 40 years and they were always afraid to tell anybody about their relationship. Uh, even their closest family didn't know. And when one of them developed dementia and went into long-term care, uh, the other one always had to try to explain away why she was there every day. And, you know, would pull her hand back when a staff member walked in and she was sitting bedside holding her partner's hand and it was, it was really difficult and the family challenged her, why are you here every day? And why are you power of attorney when I'm the daughter? And I, you know, so it, it, that hiding that unfortunately so many people choose to do can really create big, big problems, you know, at this period in life. And so sad that you even just have to layer that on top of everything else. Um, 
but there was an angel that walked into their life in the form of a hospice nurse. And the hospice nurse uh, recognized the tenderness between the two women at the end of, of the life of the partner with dementia. And she asked the question. She said, you know, are, are, are you partners? And the, the healthy one answered, yes, yes, we are, we have been. And she said, well, would you like to do a little uh, ceremony here? I would witness. And um, my friend spoke the words to her partner who was passing from dementia about how much he loved her and made a commitment to her, almost like a little commitment ceremony right before she passed. And I just thought it was uh, so beautiful. But when you think about it, Penny, I think that's the hope for the future is that there are, and I don't even know if I like the word welcoming. I think it's bigger than that. It's better. Um, but I think it's just that we, we just embrace every soul that we come in contact with and treat them well and treat them the same with our lend a hand, open our heart so that uh, nobody has to hide and everybody's empowered again to be the best that they can be and surrounded by love and compassionate um, care providers and society. That's my hope. I don't think I can say anything after that, Kim. That's a beautiful hope. And I think it's, you know, exactly, I would think the kind of world that we all wanna live in. And importantly to our work, the kind of world that we wanna grow old in. Yes, right? well said, well said. You know, so, oh my goodness, thank you for being here again. You know, I have just so much to think about now with this conversation and I think other people will too. Kim, can you do a mention of where people can find you um, and what your website is? Yeah, so Penny, we we're Crisis Prevention Institute, Dementia Care Specialist is a part of that organization. So crisisprevention.com. You can find our dementia care specialist products and services. Uh, we have training for staff, training for families, and we like to lock arms with partners and help them to provide the best person-centered dementia care possible. And then we have new family training called Dementia Capable Care at Home for Families. So it's a little bit about who we are. And I just, again, I wanna thank you for your mission and all your good work. It's a real privilege to be here with you. It always is, thank you. Well, thank you so much for being here. And for everyone, if you'd like to listen to Kim's podcast from last season, just go to our website at pioneernetwork.net. You can click on the events tab and that will lead you to all the Listen, Learn, Explore podcasts. You can check out all of our podcasts on that website or whatever platform you listen on. So Kim, thank you once again for being here and thanks to all of you and have a great day. My pleasure, thank you.